Deb? I'm here. Welcome to the Friday Grief Chat. And we have a guest. Deb, do you want to do the honors? Oh, my gosh. Yes. So I decided that's why I didn't ask Alan for any info because I already know it. I, well, okay, let me just start with I love Alan Klein. <laughs> Alan and I, we met when I think he had this book out at a table in 1999 at an AATH conference. And when I saw this book, I went, I need to know more. And so Alan has been very poignant in, in my personal growth about grief, about laughter, about love. And uh, I am proud to say Alan and I share many things, uh, spiritual beliefs and laughter and a twisted, a balloon twisted animal sense of humor. Yeah, because we are just and and I've served on the board with him. He has been well. Let me just say, Alan, is it over thirty books or forty books at this point? You have let's say over thirty. Over thirty. Over thirty, and I have many of them, and I use them whether they're quotes, whether they're healing power of humor. His um, not his latest one, but this one. Hold it up right there. There you go. Uh -huh. Yeah, this is another great one. Um, and then most recently, he just published, it just came out the other day, called The Awe Factor. I do not have a copy of that. There you go. Yes. Yep. Thanks, Alan. That's awesome. Yes. Awesome. Yes. Look. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. And it's been, so that's my introduction to Alan. He just puts his whole mind, body, and spirit into everything he puts out to educate others, make sure they don't feel alone in their in in their perspectives. So thank you, Alan. I've known you a long time. It's wonderful. <laughs> Look at that. Oh, we need those, Deb. <laughs> we do. We do. There are a lot more things on Alan's desk, I'm sure, but we'll do that after the broadcast. Yes. So, so Alan, did I miss anything? Uh, no. Wonderful. Every bit of my life. Yeah. Every bit. Yeah, so, every bit. Yeah. Let me just get to some of the questions here because when I first I've actually served a long time ago on a, a grief chat um, panel with you. It was long, long ago. I know, really long ago. And one of the <laughs> questions, I know we're old, Alan. Yeah, so I know. One of the oh, me, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, I give you that. So tell us a little bit about one of your first grief experiences and i'm talking about with your wife right when she died right. and then um and then what was it like to have a loved one die when both of you were young so 
Right. Well, she was 11 years younger than me. So she was uh, young. Um, we had just moved. We, she was from uh, San Francisco. I was from New York City and we had a cross country romance. And um, I thought it was cheaper to marry her than be on the phone all the you know, <laughs> hours and hours. Um, I found out after I was married, I was wrong. Uh, <laughs> it was not cheaper to marry her. Um, but um, we were together a little over 10 years and we loved um, New York City, but she was born and raised in San Francisco and I would visit her. And I said, someday I want to move here and I want a Victorian house. And so we moved and after about a year, we found out she had a rare liver disease and the prognosis was three years. And there was no liver transplants. It was a very difficult time. Um, and she did pass away after three years after the diagnosis, but she had a great sense of humor and um, used it during that time. I'll give you that one famous example that I, I tell people. She was in the hospital with the Playgirl magazine with the male, uh, where am I? <laughs> male new centerfold and she said alan i really like this man this month can you put it on the wall by the bed over there and i said ellen it's a hospital it's a little risque for that she said well maybe you're right she said why don't you get a leaf from the plant over there and cover up that part and i did and for the first day things are fine for the second day things are fine but by the third day the leaf starts shriveling up <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And I just like it. you're laughing now, you know, we started to laugh. And I realized this little light bulb went off, how much that laughter helped us. Even, even though it was only maybe 30 seconds or a minute, it helped us rise above the situation, gave us a reprieve, um, gave us a different perspective. And so it, it fascinated me. And after Ellen died, I went back to school. I gave up a business I actually had in San Francisco. Went back to school to learn about um, death and dying and about therapeutic humor. And that's when I first started writing my book, The Healing Power of Humor, which came out in 1989. Oh, you got it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and it's still going strong. It's a 40-some-odd printing and a ninth foreign language translation. So it certainly hit a, uh, a nerve at that time with people. And Norman Cousins was talking about himself being healed with humor. And I think it kind of dovetailed into that. Um, and, I, you know, I was just like the right place, I think, at the right time for what people wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you, Alan. That just shows the, I use the word grace, not in a religious way, but in, it shows a certain flow of movement within grief that can flow into laughter, into humor, to a certain uh, cognitive ability to transcend just the moment, you mm. know, and then I, I know you could probably talk about the chemical release and this and that. Um, but more importantly, how 
can you give any more detail on how you felt? I mean, that's going then, but even since then, when you were in a grief situation, how humor transcends that moment. Can you describe that a little bit? Well, you know, I first of all, let me say, I think humor is kind of an attitude. It's the way we look at the world. That's the way mm -hmm. I see humor. You know, the, yeah. the yeah. scientific people may describe it differently, but that's my basic. Um, I like to keep things simple. And that's my basic thing. It's the way you see the world. So you can see it as really negative. I have lost someone. This is terrible, the worst thing in my life. And I did say some of those things when I lost Ellen. Mm -hmm. But later I started to realize, and this really helped me, is, and it's a teacher that taught me this. He once said, uh, to want what you don't have is to waste what you do have. Mm -hmm. so yes, I lost a loved one in my life. But then I started to look around, what did I still have? I still had a wonderful daughter. I still had friends. I still had a business, uh, my job. I still had um, a house. I still was able to buy groceries and clothes. You know, I wasn't out on the street. I still have, and this is really important. I still had incredible memories. And That's I right. remember one one of the things I think people do, particularly if you have a child, because. Ellen died um, in our bedroom, and my daughter Sarah was just coming home from school, just like 10 minutes after that. And mm -hmm. my mother-in-law was here, and she, oh, we gotta call the funeral director. You know, no, don't tell Sarah. And I go, no, don't call the funeral director. And I took Sarah up to the bedroom, and we sat with, with Ellen, and we held her hand, and we just sat there. And I think, you know, I didn't, no one before me that close had died and I had no idea what to do, but something in my gut said, don't get rid of the body right away, you know, and, and share this moment with my daughter. Because imagine she came home from school and never saw her mother again. Right. Mm -hmm. But I didn't, you know, it wasn't a thinking thing. It was just like a gut, you know. This mm -hmm. is what I need to do. And I am so, so grateful for that. And I think my daughter, Sarah, is too, because it was a, a precious moment to say goodbye to her mm -hmm. and to be with her. And what was so great about looking back is that from then on, my daughter, Sarah, and I never hesitated to talk about Ellen. And in fact, we would often like get in a situation we didn't know what to do. We go, well, what would Ellen do? You know, how would Ellen find humor in this situation? So in that way, we keep the person alive. Mm -hmm. And course, Absolutely. because of the work I did and became, uh, you know, humor therapy and the keynotes and the books, it's kept her alive for many, many, many years. So. Yeah, and it broke and down all the barriers about talking about her. Mm -hmm. which is really right. important for kiddos. And it must have been counterintuitive at that point because even to this day, I get calls saying, you know, so-and-so's dying. Should we tell the kids? Like, mm -hmm. I don't know. If oh, you're not going to tell the kids, oh. what are they going to think? They yeah, yeah, there. yeah. And I think, you know, I think I learned that when I was very young and my grandfather that I really liked died. And they would, I, mean, I don't remember how old I was, seven, eight, nine, they would not let me go to the funeral. Uh -huh. 
and I think you know, looking back, it's like I was so confused, right? You know, because one day Grandpa was there, and one day he wasn't, and I could never see him again. So I think that's a really mistake that people make. Uh, just be open. Somebody's dying; they love too, and and uh, include them in the process. It, that is so spot on, Alan. Because it, I I have a new client, and one of the things that brought her to me had to do with my daughter is asking questions. I don't even know how I feel about it. Mm. So for everybody to do just a little self-reflection on how do I feel about death? You know, how do I feel about, am I going to sweep it under the rug for myself? But that's really the beauty of your books that I have found that you talk about things that are hard to talk about mm -hmm. and you explain them in um, a non-religious way. And I sometimes religion tends to uh, sweep it under the rug with some pat answers. They'll or go to heaven. Say that again, Jill. Or muddy it all up. Or yeah, muddy it up. Yeah, yeah. And so I really just intuitively, you doing that with your daughter, and she was 10 at the time. Right, yeah. So what a... You know, I think, you say non-religious, I think it's spiritual. I, just, I really consider yeah. myself spiritual. And, and the message right. I'm giving, it's like the new book, the awe book. Mm -hmm. I spent months trying to define what awe is. And you go to the dictionary, it basically means um, wander and fear. I know, fear, you know, but if you think of like a lightning thunderstorm, it's, oh my God, look at that lightning and yet there's fear inside. So that's true. But then I want to look at the non-fear. Mm -hmm. um, and what I finally came up with is that awe is... Um, part of the divine, that you see the divine mm -hmm. when you have an awe experience. So again, mm -hmm. it's spiritual, it's not yes. particularly religious. Exactly, and of course, that's another reason why I was totally drawn to you. I mean, I don't mean to put you up on that high of a pedestal, but I'm not gonna, <laughs> knock, you, but I'm not gonna <laughs> knock you down today either. There you go. Well, you know, hey, I'm, reaching, I'm reaching because, um, you know, look at the Oscar I got. Oh, right. Hey, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's still my heart. <laughs> Alan, I have another question for you. Uh -oh. um, so why did you write Embracing Life After Loss? And can you tell us a little bit about that book? Oh, that... Um... That's really another one of my heart books. You know, a number of my books are quotations and, um, you know, uh, affirmations to lift people right. up. Mm -hmm. Right. But this book, yeah, <laughs> um, I wrote because after Ellen died, I, a couple of things happened. One, I went to a therapist and after the second session, he told me life is tough. And I got up and I walked out and I said, I don't have to pay you whatever I was paying then. X amount of dollars per hour to tell me life is tough. I already know it. So I wasn't getting any help there. And um, I, so I start reading books on grief. Mm 
And what I found, and, and both Deb and Jill, you probably know this, often they're really thick. And they started to tell me, of, and maybe they're different these days, but then they tell me about how terrible I would feel. Um, I might lose my appetite. I would lose my sleep. Uh, you know, It and wouldn't I, get better. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it might take years, whatever. And I'm thinking, I don't need this kind of book. So down the road, I was thinking, I wish there was a simple book to help people through loss. Mm -hmm. Just something that they could open anywhere, any day, and maybe get an uplifting thing. That's why I wrote the book. And it's in really five really simple um, sections, which is, and you know, the reason I chose five is because Kubler-Ross, right, had five stages to dying. And I thought, hey, if she has five stages, <laughs> I want five also. So um, I'm just turning to the index as I get this right. Um, so the first one is learning. And I can quickly go through each if you'd like. Um, yeah, go ahead. Please. Yeah, but you know, um, I'm sorry. See, I turned to the wrong page. That's not learning. It's losing. I shouldn't even look at this. I probably remember it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, losing, that we have to realize that death is part of life. Mm -hmm. Right. Imagine, just imagine if everybody lived forever. My God, what this world would be, you know, so we wouldn't have enough food. We wouldn't have enough housing. There are people starving right now. And, and you know, so I look at death as kind of nature's vacuum cleaner, you know, <laughs> at some point you need, and it's, it's hard, it's sad. Um, but I, as I mentioned before, we can't keep that person's spirit alive. So the first step is is realizing in losing, realizing that we all die. Mm -hmm. The second thing is learning. I think, at least for me, death was the greatest teacher I've ever had because it makes it made me realize I don't know when I'm going to die. And it could be tomorrow. And if I want to do something, if I want to tell someone I love them, I better do it now because I don't have, I don't know what the future is going to be. And um, so that's, you know, that's even uh, at that time when I start, when I realized that starting writing my book and speaking about it, because I realized I didn't have that much time. People said you can't get a book published and all of that. But so it's, it's uh, losing, learning. Um, <laughs> you know, I wrote it so long ago. <laughs> uh, I just want to make sure I have it in the right order. Learning. Um, oh, three is letting go. Wait, I'm looking it up. I'm following because, along. Yes, letting go. There you go. Letting go. Um, you can't get on with life if you're not letting go. I remember when I was a hospice volunteer, a woman in her 30s, her mother died, and I was a volunteer with her for two years. And for two years, she she just couldn't get over the loss. I'm not saying we shouldn't grieve. Grief is important. But it gets in the way of our living. And what I saw then was two lives were lost. The mother had died, and the daughter's life was basically at a standstill. And her life was kind of lost also. So we've got to move on and um, start to let go is, is the way to do it. And the way to do that, I think, is start living. 
And I think one of the wonderful ways that you can start that anyone who's lost someone is to volunteer and help other people. Because when you help other people, you know, you're lifting yourself up. So, so I became a hospice volunteer with the first hospice in San Francisco. And it really, it was incredible working with other people. It just, just, you know, it was sad sometimes, but it really helped me. And of course, the, the last thing is, is laughing, you know, uh, the last L. They're all L's. Kubler-Ross didn't have all L's. I have all L's. <laughs> <laughs> But look for the humor because, yes, the sadness is there, but, uh, you know, there's humor too. And, in fact, there's a study, um, Kelter and Bonanno, Bonanno are the researchers, and they found that widows or widowers who could find some humor in the first two years of the loss of their loved one did so much better down the road and didn't get depressed as the uh, other group that did not find any humor. So there's actually research on it that, you know, the humor helps. And yet some people who are grieving, you know, feel guilty about it. And, and my thing is it, it's helping you. Not only is it helping you, but when I did research for the Coach to Laugh, I asked people, how would you want your loved one who has died? How would you want them to remember you? And I'd say, 99%, I'd want, you know, I, I I think they'd want me to enjoy myself, to go on with my life, and to be happy. Mm-hmm. And yet people feel guilty when they do that. So it's counterintuitive, but um, so my that's my five my five steps. That that is those. so perfect, Alan. I, I one of the things that goes along with uh, resilience and grieving is don't wait for the loss to start. Do this mm. now. Look for things that make you laugh. Search mm. out things now. You're accomplished at that. You you have you know to, how to do it. And, and Jill, I don't know if you know this, but um, part of Alan's uh, money-making journey in life was working on Captain Kangaroo, and I was a hero. uh, And (laughs) so I was listening to another interview you did just recently and how you had to make uh, a box that delivered carrots or something for Bunny Rabbit, who was on right. Right. And so you had to have a perspective. Even back then, you knew, I have to look at things in a a child wonder-like way. Mm -hmm. And look at, and that was, I won't say how old you are, but that was a long time ago for you, Alan. Long, long time, yes. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) And so you are accomplished in this. You have done this over and over in your life when there wasn't a loss. And so Hmm. that's what's so amazing that I think living now in living you have to look for the laughter you you have to it's a must you have to look for the awe you have to look for that and practice now not when 
every day people are experiencing losses anyway, especially right? right now. Especially right now. And so practice while you're in your house. Look out, look out the window. In Avenue Q, there's a song, There is Life Outside My Apartment. Oh, <laughs> and so so you gotta look out the windows, look and see yeah. what nature is doing. I just did a training for a bunch of therapists in New York City. And one of the things I emphasize when I'm training them on how to do grief, other than not using Kubler-Ross after someone died, is um, you really have to model the humor. You have to model giving people space for joy and laughter and remembering the person for the stuff that they did, which was funny and sometimes not so funny. And they look at me every time you're supposed to laugh when you're doing grief work. And then someone finally said this time, you know, one of my clients laughed in session and then she felt so guilty. And I said, and that's why you have to laugh because you have to model it. You got to get permission. People who are grieving need laughter. It's the, it's one of the only ways to get through it. Yeah. And laughter and tears, I don't think people realize, but laughter and tears are very close. They slide and they, into and they come from the same deep well when it's genuine uh -huh. laughter um, and tears do too. And they're both, um, therapeutic mm -hmm. yeah. that's right so it doesn't matter whether the tears come out your eyes or they run down your leg they are therapeutic i have um if it's okay i have another question for you alan because uh -oh. i want to move She's after you. what what you today <laughs> well i got his attention um <laughs> I love how you transitioned from grief to awe, from the grief mm. books to awe. You know, can you tell us a little bit more about this book? And also, how did you make that transition? Talk a little bit more about that, if you don't mind. Sure. Um... Well, basically, I was I was looking at my life and realizing there were so many all moments, and uh, you know, and they weren't Niagara Falls or Double Rainbow kind of moments. They were just, you know, bit every day, but things that I totally didn't expect, um, like which oh, there's so many I don't know which to. Do. <laughs> okay, we'll talk. The book, the all book that just came out is a result of an all moment. And it happened a number of books ago. And I had quotation books, as I said, published by Random House. And that division went, closed the offices, saved money, and all my books were not in print anymore. So I got the rights back. And for almost two years, I tried to resell them. Nobody wanted them. So I put a sign above my desk that said, the perfect publisher will find me. And I stopped trying to sell them. A couple of months later, I went to a meeting of, of uh, book publicists and I'm sat down on the aisle and man next to me turned to two women behind me and I overheard them say, we're starting a new division and we're looking for uplifting, motivational, uh, but inspirational books. And I said, I have seven of them that Random House just stopped printing. And she gave me the card. She said, send them to us. 
and I looked at the card and the first all moment, they were about three blocks from where I live. Oh, <laughs> I love that. That's only the first part of the story. So the all, all moment. So uh, they stopped publishing them and then they got too big for their little office near me and they moved to across the, the bay to Berkeley, had this big party and I walk in and this woman comes up to me and says, so glad you're with us um, uh, as one of our authors. I own this company. And uh, and do you know I've known you for uh, about 12 years or I, I, I've seen you for 12 years ago. What are you talking about? And she said, I used to live right across the street from you and see you walk your dog every oh single day. Oh my gosh. Day. Another awe moment, you know. So I've had so many of those in my life. I thought I've got to share these and I've interviewed other people and uh, and just put the book together because, uh, you know, there's just stories that are incredible in there of, of the awe moments in people's lives. I, I remember you approached me and now I'm in that book. That's right. You have a story. Yes. And I've got to send you a copy of the book, but... You will. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. Don't forget to sign it. You you know, you have your own shelf in my house. Yeah. All so, right. All right. So, yeah. There's, there's a question, Deb. I just put up oh, on what's, the comments. It says, Terry says, how do you feel about how to uh, bringing pets into the mix, I think, for grief? Alan, do you want to talk about Yeah, pets? I have a pet. I We had one at that time. It was Ellen's dog. Um I have a, a beautiful dog now, rescue dog now. Um, Cheerios is her name, which she came with. And I thought this is perfect because I can call her Cheery <laughs> for short. And um, she's so fun. She's just, um, you're holding, Jill, you're holding a, a dog. So you, you should it's answer Fred. that question. Yeah, Fred is with us almost every week and he's a rescue too. And you know, uh, yeah. pets are absolutely part of the, well, you the know, the good process, thing the process, all of it. Yeah. Uh, good thing about a dog is you've got to take it out three times a day. And I noticed when I was working with uh, people who are grieving, they didn't go out much. You know, no. they were like staying at home. And so the dog will, if nothing else, get them out of the house. And I'm sure other people will come over and want to pet the dog. And so they're interacting with other people or other dogs. And it's really a, I think, a great tool to, uh, and and you know, dogs they show love all the time. So if they're lacking, feeling no contact, or lacking in love, you know, the dog can help there too. Yep. Thank you for that. I just want to make sure we didn't ignore Terry on that. Sorry. Great Jill. question. Yeah. No, no, that's perfect. Were there any other questions, Jill? Because you're probably that's looking at I'm them. Seeing. Yeah, that's the only one I'm seeing. We're getting them from several feeds. Okay. Yeah. Great. Great. Yeah, I, Alan, this has been wonderful. I, I'm just so happy that you are here with us today to be on Grief, Trap, Grief Chat. And uh, you have made such a uh, awesome amount <laughs> of, <laughs> of, of contributions in grief, in resilience, in humor, 
that to bring them together and still keep that childlike wonder of awe in across all your books. And I, I personally appreciate it. And uh, yeah, you're, I mean, you're prolific. I'm like, how does he do this? How does he do this? He actually sits down. I know. I remember you going to the library. Oh, I've got to go to the library again. And I'm like, oh. that's before computer, right? If that's you right. Will, my first book was written, well, it came out 89. So probably 86, 87, I was writing. No computer, no internet. No, um, no. Oh my um, gosh. Well, I went to libraries, yes. But every, even when you talked about having to get that published and all the, your very first book, The Healing Power of Humor, I found it interesting as I would sit back in the back of the room watching, you always had resilience in disappointment in loss. You always had, um, and maybe that's because you're speaking and I didn't see you crying before behind the scenes. <laughs> right, which, yeah, I cry a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. You're, you're both your humanity and divinity. You are both. And being who you are combines all of that so that you are an example to humankind of how life can be with loss, with awe, building machines for bunny rabbits that are not, that are puppets that get carrots, whatever. Um, <laughs> and I, I just want to say thank you. Thank oh. you for being on this planet and doing that. Thank mm -hmm. you. May I tell you one short awe story that goes with what you're saying? And it's not my Please. ego speaking. I just, I just am so honored that I have, been given this talent to share with the world um, and the letters and emails I get from people of how it's helped them. But um, I took a class in um, prosperity and we had to do this. In fact, it's up on my wall, kind of this treasure map. <clears throat> and, and it has a lot of A's on it and various things and money and a lot of light bulbs, light bulbs, candles, a uh, little gold foil, um, uh, strings of lights. And I realize over the years what I really am is not, yes, a jollytologist, but I expanded that. And what I really am is the ambassador of light. Yes. So I came up with that, that name and I didn't tell anyone. I just look at that and I think I'm the ambassador of light and I've got to keep spreading that light. So one day I'm at, we're both associated with Unity. I'm at Unity and this newish person, she maybe was there a couple of months, comes up to me and says, I love being around you. You're, you're so uplifting. You're the ambassador of light. And I got the chills. Wow. Because I hadn't told anyone that phrase. So, uh -huh. you know, one of the things I think is we put out... <laughs> who we are without a word, without saying anything. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, oh, Alan. Well, awesome. it's just been a joy to oh, have you. Fun. fun yes. Fun, fun. Yeah. Good being here. Thank, Thank you. you Thank you, Deb. Love you both. All right. Keep 
keep on keep holding the light keep being the light thank you Love all you. right thank you everyone bye. for being here bye bye, bye everyone <laughs>